Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Today, we are going to be exploring what the heck our consumer financial services regulators have been up to for the past 45 days or so. But before we get into that, really quick, must, must, must thank our amazing sponsor, BAI. If you're a financial institution or servicer to a financial institution, you know that Regulation F went into effect on November 30th. What does that mean? It means new training. And lucky for you, that is one of BAI's specialties. Check out BAI's new non-bank course curriculum track with special content focused on Regulation F and the rest of the regulatory alphabet soup. And thank you once again, BAI, for your continued support. Can't tell you how much it means to me and everyone who gets to tune in uh, and listen to new episodes. Okay, back to our regulators. Our guest today is Manny Newberger, adjunct professor of consumer law at UT Austin School of Law of 24 years and vice president of Barron and Newberger, a leader of consumer financial services practices, incredibly accomplished lawyer, and I'm proud to say a colleague and friend of mine who I have been begging to get on the show for the past two years. He has finally said yes. Manny, welcome. Thanks, Dara. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. So, Manny, um, I think it would be an understatement to say that the regulators who are charged with the rulemaking and enforcement of financial services laws and particularly consumer financial services laws have been very, very busy the past few years and even busier the past few months. I want to sort of take a little snapshot in time and take a look at the past 45 to 60 days and in particular, the activity that we've seen come out of the primary two regulators, the Federal Trade Commission and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and about what they've been up to, what they've been publicizing, and really what that really means, I think, for the rest of consumer financial services regulation into the Biden administration and beyond. So we're going to start with, I think, one of the lesser known uh, announcements that's come out, which may not sound super exciting to anyone but the lawyers, but Manny's going to share with us why everyone should be paying attention. And it's about a topic called the holder rule. So Manny, before I bastardize it, why don't you tell me and all of the listeners what the FTC has said about the holder rule and why we should all care? Thanks, Dara. So the holder rule is found in uh, Title 16 of the Code of Federal Regulations, Part 433. Um, and it's intended to preserve consumers' claims and defenses. And the theory behind it is to avoid sort of collusion between lenders and thinly capitalized sellers where you could have dishonest sellers that take advantage of consumers. And then the letter comes in and says, hey, not my problem. I'm a holder in due course. So what it does is it abrogates the holder in due course rule. It preserves the claims the consumer has against the seller and lets them be asserted against the holder of, of the instrument. And, and you've seen this. You, may, you probably didn't realize you've seen it, but you've seen it on retail installment contracts. It's always in boldface, uppercase type. It says 
something so let's take like a step, let's take a step back for a minute so for listeners when we're talking about sellers and consumers and what contracts are at issue manny can you give us sort of like set the stage of what one of these transactions looks like and then how this rule comes into play so typically you're going to see this on things like auto notes other types of retail installment transactions again ones where there's going to be a relationship between a seller and a, and a lender uh, manufactured housing tr transactions uh, for the debt buying industry, auto paper, you're going to see a lot of it. Uh, we see it in other types of retail installment paper. And, and if you want to know if it, if it uh, if it's in play, just look at the contract because the contract says it's, it's, it's boldface, it's all caps. The notice says something to the effect that notice any holder of this consumer credit contract is subject to all claims and defenses that could be asserted against the seller of goods or services obtained pursuant here to or with the proceeds hereof. And in plain English, what that means is if you own that contract and the consumer's got a claim against the seller, they can bring it against you. So for a debt buyer, that's pretty scary. You could buy a retail installment contract that involves a four-year-old transaction and find yourself being countersued uh, or originally sued by the consumer saying that the seller defrauded them and they're looking to hold you liable for it or that they're asserting their defenses against you and that they told you about that and you still reported them as owing a deficiency when they told you that the, the seller committed a wrongful repossession or cheated them in the transaction. so And this would mean that, that that purchaser of that note would be held responsible for conduct that they took no part in. Exactly right. It is, it is a very interesting type of liability. It is, it is a derivative liability where you're liable for someone else's conduct. And the whole point of this is that if you're going to do financing in this space, that you be really careful about the people you do business with. That's that's sort of the FTC's perspective on it. And uh, there's some limits. Now, to the extent that I assert that a consumer asserts it defensively, so they say, I've got a defense to your debt because of what the seller did. There is no limit to the extent it can be asserted defensively. They can try to beat the entire balance that's owed based on misconduct by the seller. To the extent they want to make you as the holder pay money to them, the rule says that the most they can get is the amounts paid under the contract. So if I've got a $20,000 retail installment contract and the consumer's paid 2000 of it, even if they've got a complete defense to the entire contract, they can only get 2000 back from the current holder because that's all they've paid under the contract. That's what the rule says. So that's what the rule says, but now what does the FTC say? So the FTC has attempted to address uh, an issue that's generated a split among different courts. And what they've said is, while the rule limits an affirmative recovery by the consumer, it does not preempt state laws that would also allow recoveries uh, for things like attorney's fees and costs in a case like this. So if I represent a consumer uh, who sues you, obviously I don't represent consumers, but if, if, a, if a lawyer represents a consumer who is suing one of our clients, in a transaction that involves one of these contracts, they can ultimately get a recovery in the form of a judgment that would, one, defeat the debt, potentially, two, award a monetary amount equal to what's been paid under the contract, even though it went to the seller and not to the debt buyer, and three, under state law, get attorney's fees and costs. Even though the FTC holder rule limits the consumer to what's been paid, this new opinion letter says, yeah, that's under the rule, but you can look elsewhere to get fees and costs and that's okay. So the scary part about that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that any of us, mm -hmm. both you and myself included, who's limited, who's litigated these cases, 
knows that fees and costs don't necessarily have any sort of rational relationship to the amount of any judgment. Um, and while actual damage liability might be capped in your example at $2,000, attorney's fees and costs could be 10, 20 times that. Exactly and we've seen it time and time is. again. There, there, that's a perfect summation of the problem with this opinion letter. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I actually think the opinion letter is, is a legally correct analysis. Um, and frankly, this is a, an issue I've taught in my law school class for the last 23 years because it, one, of, one of the cases that has allowed this type of recovery is from my state Supreme Court. Uh, and, and I remember back in, in the 80s and 90s when these, this issue would come up, the lawyers representing the auto finance companies would always say, we're never going to give in on that. But most of their clients were smart and didn't want to roll the dice on making more bad case law. Where we are now is, yes, you, you've nailed it. Uh, you could sue a, a, a borrower on a retail installment contract, have them counterclaim, and discover that because of something the seller did that had nothing to do with your company and over which you had absolutely no control, the consumer is now asking that you pay back every penny they paid under the contract and all of the fees through trial and appeal. Doesn't, I mean, so Manny, obviously you're not the FTC, I'm not the FTC, you don't really take issue with the underlying like legal premise of the opinion, but don't you think that in effect, in, in practical application, this sort of completely undermines the cap that the holder rule had previously put in place? It, it does. Um, and, you know, I think that to some extent what it is doing is rewarding reasonable conduct and punishing unreasonable conduct from a governmental regulator perspective. A, a, a holder who comes in, analyzes the case, investigates it thoroughly and says, hey, you know, here's our responsibility. It's going to be able to minimize their risk. What, what it also does, quite honestly, and from a business perspective, to me, this is really important, is it means you better pay attention to your indemnification rights. If you're oh, you took the words right out of my mouth, Manny. That's the next question I was going to be asking. How do So in order to, now that the FTC has come out and flat out said, yeah, there's a cap, but like there is also these other avenues for you to have to pay a whole lot more than you thought you were going to have to pay. How does a holder then protect themselves? Well, one, I think you better know your seller. And, and let me just digress for a minute. That message is clear from recent activities by the FTC and multiple AGs. I can tell you, my firm has been involved in the defense of multiple state regulatory actions where state regulators were going after uh, essentially a finance entity that was helping finance a, a small seller. Um, well, in one case, we beat the Texas AG a fair number of years ago, but on the other hand, we recently were involved in a settlement that thankfully didn't cost our client anything, but cost the sellers a lot of money. Uh, and, and I think the lesson really is get a good indemnification and know the people with whom you do business because Darren, you and I have both seen it. An indemnification agreement from someone who has no assets isn't worth much. No, no, it, no, it's not. Um, okay, so for those of you out there who are in the business of, of issuing retail installment contracts, of buying retail installment contracts, of collecting on retail installment contracts, if you have not read the FTC's new advisory opinion, you better hop on that website right away, take a look at it, 
got questions, um, you know how to get a hold of us, but absolutely something that's really, really important. Hot off the presses just released a few days ago. Um, Manny, any last words on the FTC and the holder rule? Yeah, there, there's one other point I really wanted to make. And, and again, Dara, I know you and I both deal with this particular type of issue, and that is this is a serious training issue. Um, I remember being involved in a case back in the 90s where the consumer called in and told their whole tale of woe about how the dealer had sold them a defective vehicle and then took the vehicle in for repairs. And because of the latent defect, the vehicle burned up in the shop and that they were going to pursue the dealer. And, and the finance company's employees said, well, that's not our problem. You have to pay us no matter what. And if you don't, we're going to ruin your credit, which they did. And uh, I can tell you that the outcome in that case was a very unhappy one for the, for the finance wah, company. Wah. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, one of my rules is don't let collectors talk about credit. The, the only words that should ever come out of a collector's mouth about credit reporting is I'm not allowed to discuss credit reporting. That, that, that's it. No, no other response should come out of a collector's mouth about credit reporting other than I can't talk about it. And, and this is one of the places where if your collectors try to talk about it, they're going to get it wrong. And you're going to get sued under state or federal law, depending on whether you're a creditor or a debt collector or both, for threatening to take an action prohibited by law, misrepresenting your rights, um, all sorts of stuff. Not to mention the fact that, let's not forget, this holder rule is actually a part of the contract. Okay, You bought the contract, you took it subject to this provision. So in states that have UDAP laws that prohibit misrepresenting the rights, remedies, or obligations under a contract, you could run afoul of that particular provision of a UDAP statute by trying to act like you're not subject to these defenses when the contract says you are. You know, that's the risk you assume when, when you buy it um, and part of the cost of doing business. So it's sure interesting is. that you that you mentioned credit reporting because that actually feeds dovetails very nicely into the next topic I wanted to talk about. And that is a recent report released by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, detailing the consumer complaint de response deficiencies of the three major credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. The bureau had some very interesting findings that they released in their report, including that the three major bureaus, quote, routinely failed to fully respond to consumers with errors. Now, I think we can all agree universally, and I think the I think even the credit reporting agencies would agree with this, is that the current credit reporting system that dominates credit and the extension of credit in the United States is flawed to use that term as generously as I possibly as I possibly can. Um, there's all sorts of arguments to be made about whether or not it's even a good indicator of the creditworthiness of a consumer. And this complaint and dispute process that exists uh, between consumers and the credit reporting agencies, which are governed by the Fair Credit Reporting Act, are part of that, right? It's, it's part of how do we ensure accuracy of the data that's being presented? And when we see a mistake, how can a consumer redress it properly? And what role and obligations do the CRAs have independently from uh, the furnishers of information, the banks, the debt collection companies, the lenders, whoever might be furnishing data to the CRAs. And the analysis recently conducted by the CFPB uh, 
It didn't look so good, Manny, did it? It it didn't, but you know, I have to have to question some of this. Um, full disclosure, I, I don't. I, I agree with you. I think the current system is flawed. I, I and I think there's been good indication that that alternative credit scoring models may have tremendous validity. You may remember Factor Trust that that got bought mm-hmm. a few years ago by one of the big three and. They were using a credit scoring model that I think the CFPB even commented favorably about. Uh, and, and there's certainly, are, there's always been the problem of garbage in, garbage out. But, but here's the thing, and, and I, I want to throw this back at you in, in the following question. I believe that as much as the bulk of the litigation we see tends to be fair debt or TCPA, that the real moneymaker cases are usually Fair Credit Reporting Act cases because screwing up someone's credit wrongfully is something that has great jury appeal. And there are some firms that are just salivating to grab those cases. Well, there's actual damages attached to those cases, right? Whereas opposed to some of the other statutory violations, it's hard to quantify, you know, what misspelling someone's name in a consumer communication is act- actually means. You and I would argue that it means less than nothing. Um, but in the but in, a, in an FCRA case where there is actually an impact on credit, you can quantify that. And experts all over the country have quantified it. And particularly when you quantify it long term and in mass, when you're talking about a class action, those numbers are very, very scary. And on top of all of that, the FCRA has longer statute of limitations than some of the other statutes uh, that are at issue. So you're looking at a longer period of conduct without the limita- without the you know damages limitations that exist in some of the other laws. And I, I mean, I would agree with you on that point wholeheartedly. So then here's the question I would pose to you. Given the high value that these cases tend to have, and given the number of law firms salivating to get them, does the private litigation really align with the Bureau's conclusion? Or is it possible that the Bureau's conclusion is, is legitimate data reflecting insignificant harm? Um, I think that that would be a fantastic question. Uh, sh- if this ever enters in a, into a, a rulemaking phase, right? The interesting thing I think about these reports is that all of this data gets pulled together. Um, and then it gets published and they don't get there. There is no dialogue like the one that you're suggesting right now. But but the dialogue happens when you get into rulemaking and then there's responses being provided and questions asked and there's a Sabrifa panel and we have all of these other mechanisms in place for, okay, what does the CFPB want to do with this? They've now released a study. They say, well, hold on, I'll quote Director Chopra directly. Uh, According to the CFPB's press release, Director Chopra said, and I quote, America's credit reporting oligopoly has little incentive to treat consumers fairly when their credit reports have errors. Today's report is further evidence of the serious harms stemming from their faulty financial surveillance business model. That is an aggressive freaking statement. I'm so glad you picked that quote because, see, I don't think that's a rulemaking quote. I think that's, a that's an enforcement actions here we sure, come. Sure, yeah. Statement. And I, I don't think the Bureau is going to do this by regulation. I think they're going to do it in the form of regulation by consent order. 
Could be wrong, but, but but that that's what that statement suggests to me. Well, I mean, that's what they did with the FDCPA for like ten years before they decided to write a rule about it. Right. Um, but so let's talk about what the bureau actually found, right? Um, so essentially, in 2021, the CFPB published a report saying that Equifax, Experian, TransUnion together reported relief in response to less than two percent of covered companies complaints down from nearly 25% of covered complaints in 2019. I think what that means is the CFPB is saying, hey, in 2019, 25% of the covered complaints got some reported relief in your system. In 2021, that was 2%. They're saying something else. They're saying, and we don't believe that you've improved that much. They, they, that is the subtext. Uh, that is the subtext of that. Um, so they also sort of like throw in a few little bullet point comments. Um, Equifax, for example, they say most often promise to open investigations and send results to the consumers at uh, later dates, but then would fail uh, to provide the CFPB with the actual outcomes, leaving open the question is, did they give the consumers the information that they promised to give the consumers? Um, apparently, TransUnion, according to the CFPB, made similar promises to consumers. Um, and for many of the complaints, they say that Experian, for example, frequently stated that it would take no action because it believed that the complaints were submitted by third parties. Very interesting, um, the third the position that the Bureau is taking about the validity of complaints made on a consumer's report by third parties, i.e. debt settlement companies, i.e. debt relief companies, which are ironically the subject of a whole other set of CFPB investigations. A absolutely. But I think we've got to recognize that there are other players besides those clowns. And that is, there's another set of players who are engaged solely in credit repair cleanup through a variety of deceptive mechanisms. Um, and you and I both see them. The, 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 the dispute that comes in purportedly signed by a consumer, but in an envelope being mailed by some credit repair company or a generic envelope yes. with a forever stamp. Uh, I think one or more of those organizations was the subject of a RICO action or two. I think you're correct. And I'm certainly involved in some fights with one of the others. And so you know, the the disputes seem, to be honest, questionable. When I see uh, a dispute that, that basically disputes every single debt on someone's consumer file, doesn't state a reason for the disputes other than I don't recognize them, doesn't allege identity theft, forgery, or fraud, uh, isn't actually signed by the consumer and is clearly sent by a third party who doesn't really identify their involvement but sends it out in their envelope, there might be a legitimate reason to question the validity of that dispute and whether it's real and how seriously one should take it. So without directly saying it, the CFPB sort of seems to suggest or imply, uh, however lightly, that they should have taken those disputes more seriously and that they are wrong for not taking third-party complaints as seriously as if they were received directly from the consumer. And, you know, they haven't said it explicitly or directly because again, they have they also have a, uh, you know, supervisory and enforcement authority over credit repair organizations and they have found that industry is a disaster 
as well. So who's right? Who's wrong? There doesn't seem to be any set of rules governing it. Um, are they just going to go around slapping everyone on the hand without giving them actual more concrete rules for, for what they should be doing here? Like no, you I mean, credit repair organization, you're bad. You're bad because you're, you know, not doing right by the consumer and you credit reporting agency who are receiving the nonsense disputes from the credit repair companies. You're also doing it wrong. Nobody's doing it right, but we're not actually, but, but that's all we're going to say. We're going to slap you with a UDAP, but then we're not actually going to tell you how to do it correctly. Well, I, I think actually if there's a consent order, they're going to tell them what they want done. And and that's going to become the, the, the new normal. But to your question, which is a really good one, um, first of all, let's recognize there are existing laws that regulate what data furnishers and CRAs are supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's more, in, in terms of not feeling particularly sorry for the consumer reporting agencies, let's face it, they're in the data business. If, they, sure. if anyone should be able to come up with data showing why they should be taking complaints more or less seriously, they ought to be the ones with that data. And, and talk about people who have enough data for it to be statistically significant. Again, they've got massive amounts of data that flow through their systems. So I, I admit I find it hard to feel sorry for the CRAs on that point because they could be developing the data and the models to show whether or not the, these complaints are fraudulent, whether they're bogus, whether there are any particular trends that affect reliability and the disputes that are out there. I think what's going to happen is if they don't do that, the Bureau is going to do it for them by imposing rules on them through consent orders that they're going to like a lot less uh, than they might get if they actually develop their data. Do you think this report is just step one, right? Okay, we're going to release this report. And then are there simultaneously conversations happening that are going to result in a consent decree or an enforcement action? Because it to me, it seems like if what you are saying is as problematic as it is, what we didn't see in the report are like the phrases violation of Fair Credit Reporting Act, unfair, deceptive, abusive practice, right? Because that language says there is a problem, we're enforcing it, we're redressing it. This is just a study. Here's the data. Glean, glean from it what you will. Like, what, what are they trying to accomplish right now? Well, so here, here's an interesting thing. I don't know if this is true with the Bureau. I have to confess my ignorance on this point. At least with the FTC, it used to be the case that if, they were, if you were involved in one of their market studies, they couldn't send you a CID. Whether it was couldn't or wouldn't, the fact is they didn't do it. So they've put out the results. They've told everyone. I would expect the next step would be to start sending out CIDs and say, say you know, we told you what you're doing wrong. Let's see if you're doing it that way still or not. So it's so funny. We we re- we just saw the results that uh, have been reported from a study that was done of the three major credit reporting agencies, and you know we're sitting here sitting here and pontificating about what steps two, three, four, and ten are. Now the next topic I want to talk about is a brand new inquiry that the CFPB opened, which may end up taking the same path as the study that we just uh, that we just discussed. But the new inquiry is into buy now, pay later credit. And right now, the CFPB is at its very, very beginning stages and information gathering about what has absolutely been the newest, hottest, most prevalent credit product of COVID, right, is the, is the buy now, pay later credit. Um, and the CFPB wants to learn more. They issued a series of orders to five companies offering buy now, pay later credit. 
The orders to collect information on the risks and benefits of these very, very fast-growing loan types. And we're talking about companies like Affirm, Afterpay, Klarna, PayPal, and Zip. Apparently, the CFPB is concerned about the accumulation of debt, regulatory arbitrage, and data harvesting in a consumer credit market that is already very quickly changing with technology. So... The CFPB has pretty much said, yeah, buy now, pay later, alternative credit, that's the same as the old layaway plan, right? That is what Director Chopra has called it. It's the same as the old layaway plan. But the twist is, is that, quote, the consumer gets the product immediately, but then gets the debt immediately too. Uh, Manny, very interested in your thoughts on what the Bureau is planning for the buy now, pay later credit programs you know they're not telling me but you know certain things strike me as as interesting let's go back to the earliest years of the bureau for one second what did, what did elizabeth warren say in even the earliest years that, that credit was like a drug and if you think about potential issues in buy now pay later um, words that come to mind are words you'd hear about in things like investments and medications. Suitability. Is, is, is the patient or the investor suitable for the thing you're giving them? Uh, and, you know, if, if there's very little or no real credit underwriting, no real consideration of someone's ability to pay, um, with this instant gratification, it becomes a real temptation for people to overextend. Uh, back to that about it being like a drug um, I'm someone who thinks you should be responsible for uh, the credit decisions you make but I don't run the CFPB and I never have but but we know the perspectives that have been uh, expressed by people who have run that organization and I would expect them to be very concerned about something that is very tempting very easy to get into and no one's really looking at how much more you're extending yourself beyond your means Well, and why is that? Because the application for some of these products is very, very quick. It involves little to no information from the consumer whatsoever. And the products that are at issue often come with no interest. And the consumer has to put, you know, a certain percentage down. But, you know, then they get their Peloton, right? Then they get their Peloton and they have to make three more, you know, payments on their bike. Uh, now, the lenders on the opposite side have really touted buy now, pay later as a much safer alternative to credit card debt, along with its abilities to serve consumers with scant or you know subprime credit history. Double-edged sword, though, right? Because especially when you're talking about topics like suitability. It, it is. Now, the other side of that, though, and I, and I really want to make this point, if you look at the credit avenues available to people with really bad credit and what they get saddled with. If you look at what someone pays to acquire goods under a rent-to-own arrangement, the, the, the cost to a consumer is staggering. I mean, the burden really is unbelievable. And so buy now, pay later in comparison is a tremendously good deal for a consumer. So if, if the person whose credit wouldn't let them get a, a loan can use buy now, pay later instead of rent to own, that is a, an incredibly better opportunity for them there. I, I, I just can't get past that. Whether the Bureau is going to be concerned with that, I don't know, but I don't think it should be overlooked. So I, I also think uh, one of the areas that the CFPB wants to learn about um, 
is the how, really how, buy now, pay later companies uh, are evaluating what consumer protection laws actually apply to the products, right? So depending on how the product functions and what it does, are the correct disclosures being made? Um, you know, we already know that there's little to no underwriting being done, or at least not in the traditional way. Um, and putting suitability to the side, um, are these companies providing dispute resolution protections uh, that are available to consumers if they use other forms of credit, uh, late fee policies, all of the other stuff that a credit card company has to make sure adequately disclosed in their terms and conditions, right? So I think they're, my, my two cents is they're gathering all of this data to figure out what analogies they can draw. Um, and to me, the comparison that they've very publicly made to the old layaway plan is a very, very interesting perspective. It's sort of like old layaway plan on steroids because when you used to do an old layaway plan because you were buying your new, you know, bedroom set, which you do like once every 10 years, this is a product that can be used with a much greater frequency than the old layaway plan ever could. But but the old layaway plan was also a chance to learn how to be responsible about payments. Because you, you didn't know. get your stuff till the end. Right. You, you know, there's a great SNL bit called, uh, if you can't afford it, don't buy it, by the way. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up. <laughs> it, it is hilarious. But, but, but yeah, I mean, really, it, it can't, comes down to that. You know, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. That was, The layaway plan basically ensured you didn't get it till you paid for it. But it did help encourage responsible savings and payments. Um, whether this does is, a, is a, another issue, I, I don't know that. I'm not qualified. I know that when I get offered, when I, when I make a purchase and I'm offered uh, a buy now, pay later, it doesn't seem to be much more than click a box. Uh, I don't pay, I don't take it, but it does seem to be that. Going back to where we started, an interesting question should be, should those types of transactions be subject to the FTC holder rule? Well, um, that all depends on whether or not the regulators are going to look at the transaction and say, does this function more like a retail installment contract, right? And, and I think that, that that is kind of an important area of inquiry. If you're, if you're going to provide this sort of instant gratification, easy credit, um, let's face it, the people, anyone involved in lending there may be closely tied to the seller and, and maybe the same considerations apply. Um, and I, and I, w I would think that people who are knowledgeable in this space would look at that question. I could be wrong, but it, it certainly jumps out to me. Well, um, I think that's exactly the sort of regulatory arbitrage, frankly, that the CFPB is probably curious about. Are you doing an evaluation of what laws and rules actually apply to your product? And Manny, you just identified another one. So guys, if you haven't examine whether or not the holder rule applies to your affirm purchase of your Peloton, you might want to, you might want to take a look uh, and get on that. You know, we're almost at the end of our time, um, but Manny, sort of out of all of the things that we've discussed today, and they've just been sort of like three narrow little topics about, you know, sort of where our regulators are right now in terms of the application of, you know, the, the rules to a whole bunch of financial services products. What Parting words, what do you think we can expect from the FTC and CFPB in 2022 and beyond? I think two things, greater enforcement by them directly and greater amount of team-ups with state regulators. They're calling for that. They're trying to accomplish that since the FTC 
took a hit at the Supreme Court. They're looking for ways to, to ding businesses with uh, civil monetary relief that may not be available to them. And I expect more state and federal team ups in the next year. So to wrap that up, that means Manny and I are going to be really, really busy um, over the next few years. Um, but, uh, you know, rest assured, there's there's lots of work to be done. And, you know, for Tech on Reg listeners, that's not to say that we're, you know, pooping on any of the great emerging products and technologies that are out there. We do, however, want all of the entrepreneurs and business owners who are creating, investing, and and doing business in these areas to go into the next few years with their eyes wide, wide open. Would you agree with that, Manny? I think that's so well said, Dara. I don't think anyone wants to stifle entrepreneurial efforts. Uh, we, we want people to come up with great new ideas, but they've, they've got to pay attention. And, and just because other people aren't doing it doesn't mean that no one thought of it. It may be that it's already been thought of and prohibited. And, and it's something you'd better figure out before you jump into a new business model. Well, I couldn't say it any better than that. So Manny, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's great to finally be able to do this. Um, and thank you listeners for tuning in once again. I will see you next time. Thanks for having me, Darren. Thanks to your sponsor for having us both here.